So this past week, um, Ashley's parents were with us for a few days, and uh, they are in the a, a transition. They're moving from um, Seattle, Washington, down into Florida. So it's a pretty long move, but they passed by to see us for a couple of days and brought a box of things, um, and inside that box uh, were some things for Levi. And so they had kind of set aside a time they were going to open the box, and Levi was going to be able to get what was in the box for him out. Um, big mistake was putting the box in his room and saying, don't open the box. And so as the time was approaching to open the box, um, Levi decided he was going to go ahead and open the box, even though he was told, like, don't open the box yet. And so he went and got scissors out of the drawer in the kitchen and went in there and we had like a couple of warnings ahead of time, like, don't open it until we say to open it. The next thing you know, he's in there snipping away. Um, you, you don't want to hear grandparents get on to the grandchild, uh, but this was one of those cases that Ashley's mom had to like say, you were told not to open the box and you're opening the box. And so um, I got up and went in there and Ashley came in to try to intervene and um, uh, said to Levi, you're not supposed to open the box until it's time to open the box. And his reply was, but dad, I wanted to open it so bad. He was anticipating opening the box, okay? So we have to step back in those situations and be like, we can't put the box in there until it's time to put the box in there. That's where this whole thing went, went, went crazy. And so I want to open it so bad. Now, before you judge a four, soon-to-be five-year-old boy for his anticipation of wanting to open so box, the box so bad, for months and weeks, a lot of you have been waiting and anticipating a day where you could sit on the couch for a solid 8, 10, 12 hours and do nothing but watch college football because you want to watch it so bad. The time, time finally came where you could sit all day on the couch. I always find it so amusing that we love to sit on the couch for all, uh, an entire day at times and watch other people exercise, right? Like, I'm... <laughs> I'm just going to sit while they run, they tackle, they pass, they block, they hit people. I want to sit and eat Doritos in the process, right? And so it was so bad waiting for the season to get here. Uh, now, I have to say, all of you Alabama fans, uh, man, don't you guys just get bored? Like at some point, it's got to be boring just to watch that much winning all the time. Like you need to pull for a team that loses some. Like they're, you need to like wonder who's going to win on occasion, so boring just to watch it every time, like another national championship. Uh, how many championships has Alabama won? 18? What, was the, what is the number? Eight? 18. How many championships has Nick, have they won under Nick Saban? Six? Uh, some of you are like, seven. I'm sorry. <laughs> Write it down. It's Seven. Right? Some of you got like the t-shirt the national championship. It's really like a dry erase marker board. You just mark the previous year off and write the new year so you stop having to buy a t-shirt every year. So, and by the way, everybody that just gave all of those, um, those answers right then, you have no excuse not to be able to have memorized Romans chapter 8. <laughs> gotcha. Anticipation. Anticipation. So a lot of you know I'm a 
unfortunately, a uh, Dallas Cowboys fan. Their season starts this Thursday. So um, I, I have four more days to believe that they can win a Super Bowl before reality sets in. See, um, when you're a Cowboys fan, it's always interesting. Are we going to end the year 8-8 eight and eight or 7-9 and nine or 10-6, and six, right? It's always, every game is just like you're anticipating what's going to happen. If you're an Alabama fan, it's like boring for you. Um, and so anticipation, we are always anticipating, looking forward, longing after something. Now, from just kind of a physical, spiritual standpoint, what I've discovered is the older that I have um, have grown, the longer uh, we anticipate the world to come, right? It's kind of the longer we live on this earth, the more we anticipate the next world. As a matter of fact, in our text today, Paul uses the word groan in this section to describe the deep desire that we have for the complete redemption of our physical bodies. He says, our bodies groan. Can I get an amen with that? Our bodies groan. I have learned that the older I have gotten, that my body tends to groan more over certain things. I knew I was getting a little bit older whenever I would play sports and then get sore from playing sports. And it kind of started like playing more physical sports. If I was playing whatever, pick up basketball or whatever, I'd be sore the next day. And then it reached the place where um, if I played golf, I was sore from playing golf. Um, sore. And then it was like, if, and some of you is like, if you've seen Devin play, you'll know why he's sore from playing golf. It's just a train wreck every time. Um, then I'm sore from playing putt-putt. What? Um, and then I like, we, we've always been an amusement park family. We go and ride big roller coasters and things like that. We went to a, a big amusement park that uh, has the most roller coasters of any amusement park in the, in the world, supposedly, um, a couple of years ago for vacation. And after the first day of riding roller coasters, I woke up the next day sore. From riding roller coasters, I was sore. And then I realized as I've approached the big 5-0 uh, that now I get sore from sleeping. Okay, now you know you're old. When you wake up and you're like, I don't know what happened last night, but I'm sore from sleeping. Our bodies groan in anticipation of the next world. Now, last week we were introduced to one of the primary realities of this world that causes us to long for, to groan for the world to come, and that is the idea of suffering. So we're going to jump back into our text. Um, I want to read again, as we've done each week, the, the text itself, the whole text of where we're at, and then we'll look at our focus passage today. So Romans 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Uh, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. Those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. 
But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, right? We talked about this last week. We are under obligation, not according to the flesh to live according to the, not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. But if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ. And then here's where the subject was introduced that we dive into the next couple of weeks. Provided that we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Like Jesus, Paul says, our current suffering is the path to future glory. Now, the natural question when we talk about an issue like suffering is this. Is suffering worth it? Is it worth it? Is the suffering worth the glory? And that's where Paul picks up in verse 18. Look at 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. This word consider means to think deeply about. It means to ponder. It means to reflect upon. So what Paul is saying is, I have given this some deep thought. I have given this some deep reflection. And Paul says there is no comparison. Our worst forms of suffering are light and momentary compared to the eternal glory that awaits us. Now there's a parallel text to uh, this verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17. Let me read that. Paul says to the Corinthian church, For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So Paul says that suffering in 2 Corinthians, suffering is preparing us for the weight of the glory that awaits us. Now it's very important here what I'm going to say. Paul is not trivializing suffering. He is not minimizing suffering. Some of you have gone through some deep suffering, some deep pain. Some of you are going through it right now. So like do not hear for a second when we teach texts like this that we are minimizing that in any way. That we are trivializing what you're going through. It's still, it's still pain. It's still hurt. It's still real. Right? We, we uh, many times, just because you don't really know what to say, we have a tendency to kind of cliche suffering, like somebody's going through something and we love to quote a memory verse or to say something that, that can come across at times that we're just kind of trivializing what a person's going through. A lot of times it's just because we don't know what to say, right? Uh, but, but that's not what Paul's doing here. He's not minimizing it. He's not trivializing it. He's trying to put it in perspective for us. What Paul is saying is our deepest suffering, our deepest pain, our deepest disappointment, our deepest frustration, as hurtful as it might be, 
is slight and momentary in comparison to the eternal weight of the glory that awaits those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, when comparing eternity, comparing what awaits us as followers of Christ, that whatever we go through, as hurtful and painful as it might be in the momentary, it is not any comparison to the glory that awaits those who are in Christ. Now, this is important. Remember, this is Paul saying this. This is Paul saying this. All right, let me just give you Paul's little kind of autobiography when it comes to suffering. This is 2 Corinthians 11, uh, 24. Paul lays out what, what he went through. Um, so here, here's, this is again, light and momentary affliction for Paul. Um, five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes less one. So 39 lashes five times. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, and he's not talking about like a college event right there. He's like, it means they like picked up rocks and threw them at him, okay? Three times I was shipwrecked. Might stop riding ships at some point. They're like, this is my third shipwreck. Something's going on here. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people. Danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger um, at sea, danger from false brothers in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night and hurt and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. And Paul, who has gone through all of these things, which as far as I know, none of those things are on our resume, okay? None of us have been pelted with rocks. None of us have been in a shipwreck. We haven't been beaten with rods. Well, I might take that back. My parents a couple of times might have come close to crossing that line. The whole like, go pick your own switch from the woods routine. What's that about? That's what happens when you come to the church. I'm preaching. I'm just, I warned them ahead of time. Like, remember, I'm the guy on the platform at some point. At this season in life, I get to have the final word. No, just kidding. I'm kidding. All these things Paul has gone through, and then he turns around and says, this is light and momentary when it is compared to the glory that awaits us. Romans 8 helps shape our perspective on personal suffering. The way that Paul begins doing that in this kind of next section is he places suffering in this bigger framework of the world around us. Look what he says in verse 19. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Paul says creation itself waits with an eager longing for the final redemption of God's people. J.B. Phillips translates this verse, the whole creation is on tiptoe to see the wonderful sight of the sons of God coming into their own. This word that's translated eager anticipation is the idea of anticipating. It is straining your neck to see something in anticipation. Rising up on your tiptoes and straining your neck to try to see something. If you've ever been in a life situation where you were maybe waiting on someone to come home from a long trip or you're at the airport, you know how that little 
drama plays itself out. All these people waiting for all these people coming down the terminal and you're maybe in the back of the crowd and you're on your tiptoes and you're straining and maybe you've got the sign or whatever it is anticipating the person to come. You can't wait to see them. And then you kind of see them in between the crowds. You're kind of looking and seeing. I think that's them. Oh no, that's not them. Maybe that's them, right? Just this eager anticipation. I can't wait to not only see them but to embrace them and to hug them and to love on them. If you're like me, it's those YouTube videos of the, 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 the service people who have been stationed overseas for a long amount of time, and then suddenly they're coming home, right? They're safe, and they're coming home, and we're like wiping our eyes when we watch those YouTube videos because of the eager anticipation. This is a terrible example, uh, but we have this Brittany uh, Spaniel named Toby that's been a part of our family for eight years. And one thing that Toby loves to do is when we are in the mornings, a lot of times I'll take him for a walk um, and he'll want to go with me. And so he knows it's time. You just say, hey, let's go for a walk. And he starts getting anticipating, right? And he has to go through this little routine. We put a collar on him and all that so he doesn't run through the whole neighborhood. Um, but I'll make him sit at our garage door until I open the garage and he'll just sit there in anticipation and then I'll just say some noise, some word, some noise, some something like, Toby, blah, 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 blah. and Toby will just, that's tra the translated into Toby language is, run free, my dog. <laughs> and so when Toby hears whatever noise or word I say, he is out like a bullet through there, ducking under the garage door as he goes, and he just makes one circle around the yard, and then comes back ready for the walk. He has an eager anticipation for the word, can't hardly contain himself to get out of the garage. And Paul uses that type of strong language here to say that the whole creation is on tiptoe waiting for the redemption of the sons and daughters of God. Look in verse 20, how he follows this up. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So what Paul's saying is God subjected creation itself to this futility. And that word means that creation has not fulfilled its purpose. It's fallen short that God has subjected creation to futility. In other words, there is a built-in brokenness and incompletion in the created world. That sin has caused the world itself, creation itself, to be broken. That it is incomplete. And that is built into the DNA of creation itself, that nothing escapes the bondage of brokenness, even creation, that the goodness of the creation, remember when God created the world, he would speak things into existence, and then what was the little phrase that he would use after he created some? It was, the response of the text would be, it was what? Good. It was good. Over and over again in the text, it was good. And now it's not good because it's broken. When sin enters the world in Genesis 3, it impacts. It was The entire world was corrupted and distorted by sin. And so Paul says God has subjected creation to this brokenness, but it's for a purpose. The purpose of hope. He says in hope that both futility and hope are built 
in to creation. Here's the gospel. Here's the good news. Only one of those two wins in the end. Futility doesn't win. Brokenness doesn't win. Corruption doesn't win, as we've said week after week, because of the resurrection. Resurrection wins. Restoration wins. Redemption wins, right? The new creation wins. Paul says creation will be set free from the bondage of decay and obtains, he uses the word freedom here, of the glory of the children of God. Paul envisions this future salvation that will redeem the entire world, including the created world, and reverse the consequences of the fall in Genesis chapter 3. And the creation groans for that. It longs for that. It anticipates that freedom. Illustration he uses here is a good one, right? Like a mother. Like a mother who is laboring, a mother who is groaning in pain and anticipation. What is the anticipation for? The birth of the child. That moment when the mother gives birth to the child and that child is handed to the mother and suddenly they realize in that moment the pain, the suffering, the groaning, all of those things is, is, is in the past. That it was light and momentary compared to the glory of holding that newborn child. I haven't experienced it, but I've watched it happen four times, right? Do I have any amens from the women? Some of you are like, you didn't see me give birth. Like, it wasn't light momentary. I'm still having flashbacks from it. <laughs> Paul says creation is groaning like a mother and anticipating the, the birth of a child that, that is built into creation. Suffering on the path to glory is built into the very fabric of creation itself. The world that we live in it's broken. It's broken. It's incomplete. And it longs for its final redemption. And we see it all around us, don't we? All around us. I mean, think of the headlines in just recent years. An earthquake wrecks Haiti. And creation groans. It groans. A viral pandemic sweeps the globe and creation groans. A hurricane devastates coastlines, the people that live there. And creation groans in anticipation. A tornado destroys everything in its path and creation groans in anticipation of a restored world. Fires ravage lands and buildings and homes and lives in Australia last year. And creation groans in anticipation. Flash floods displace thousands of people in Indonesia. And creation groans. A volcano erupts in the Philippines and entire villages and families are lost in a moment's time. And creation groans. Swarms of locusts eliminate needed crops in East Africa. And creation groans. 
Decay and disease and death and pain and pollution and natural disasters and sickness and violence and war and corrosion. This is the world that we live in. This is the world that is impacted by the brokenness. This is the world that is filled with the corruption from Genesis 3 forward. And creation stands on its tiptoes and stretches its neck in anticipation of the full and complete redemption of the sons and daughters of God, a redemption that is so vast and so astonishing that it impacts even creation itself. And in the meantime, God gives us glimpses, doesn't he? He provides in his grace glimpses and moments of beauty and grandeur amid the brokenness. Winter gives way to spring. Blooming flowers are around us, beautiful beaches, majestic mountains, illustrious forests, expansive skies above us, above us, flowing streams, delicious food, refreshing water, extraordinary sunsets, extraordinary sunrises, glimpses of grace, Glimpses of glory, then creation stands on his tiptoes in anticipation of that final day when John the Revelator speaks of a new heaven and a new earth that are not defined by brokenness, but are defined by wholeness, where groaning gives way to glory. John describes it as the land of no more. No more sickness, no more pain, no more sorrow, no more tears. Where the lion and the lamb gather and lay together in peace and harmony. That's the world that awaits. And in the meantime, creation groans and anticipates that final day. I always get that question. What about my dog? My dog going ahead of me, like I had a dog that died. Am I going to see my dog again in heaven? I don't know. I know there's animals in heaven. The question whether your dog is there is a great big question mark, right? We do not know. There's no place in the Bible to open up and say, hey, your dog made it. Um, there's not necessarily a place in the Bible that says your dog didn't make it. There's a lot of places that say your cat didn't make it, but <laughs> cats straight to hell, I'm telling you. Maybe purgatory, turn that thing into a tiger or something, but either way, we anticipate a day when all of creation is in its full restoration, where children play with what used to be venomous serpents in no danger. The scriptures describe these moments, glimpses of glory, the law of Entropy, right, maintains that the world is in this kind of gradual decline into disarray and disorder. We know that if you try to plant and sustain a garden, you know that, that the world is filled with decay and disorder because you have to go out and pull weeds and you have to get rid of worms and you have to kill army worms in your grass. And the world is on this steady decline into disarray and disorder and creation groans. And the gospel announces the world is broken, 
But there is coming a day when the Creator will set creation free from its bondage to decay. And for that reason, Paul says, we have hope. I'm not talking about wishful thinking hope. I hope I get a video game system for Christmas. I'm talking about biblical hope, which is full confidence and assurance based on who God is. The sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to those who are in Christ. Now, this is so important we have this conversation. There will always be levels of unanswerable why questions when it comes to the issue of suffering. Why did this take place? Why is this happening? And the reason that happens is because, as we've said many times, we've talked about this, we're limited, we're finite, we can't see the big picture, right? We can't see what God's doing. We have the hope and confidence that He's doing something. We'll get there when we get to verse 28 of this chapter. But because we're finite, limited, space-time creatures, we do not have the privilege to see the whole picture. And so because of that, there will always be why questions. Why is this happening? Why is this suffering taking place? Here's what I want to say to you about that. Suffering only makes sense in the framework of a Christian or a theistic worldview, that there is a God who's in control. Suffering in a world with no gospel... Suffering in a world with no God can never be explained as anything other than the harsh and cruel reality of our temporary existence. If you're trying to understand suffering outside of the gospel, outside of a belief in a creator God who is in control and sovereign, if you're trying to understand suffering in any framework outside of that, it simply doesn't make sense other than just, it's just the bad luck that I was dealt Within the Christian worldview, in the context of a Christian belief system, it pushes us toward the hope and confidence that suffering does not have the final word. That suffering is the path to glory. That our suffering is not wasted. It is not frivolous. It is not meaningless or trivial because it has a built-in hope that God is doing something. That God is up to something. I'll say, I've said this before, I'll say it again. If there's no resurrection, if there's no gospel, shake your fist to the skies when suffering comes and say, why me? But if there is a God who sent His Son to die on the cross and to suffer as an innocent person suffering as a path to glory, then we can know this doesn't make sense to me right now and it it hurts and I can't understand it and it's painful, but God's in control. I, I may not get it all. I may not understand it. I may not get answers to all my questions, but I can put my full faith and confidence that there is a God who is good and cares and is working things for His glory and my good. And that gives me the enabling strength through the Holy Spirit to go through moments of suffering. We'll come back to this next week when Paul makes this personal. That God uses suffering in a redemptive way for his glory, for our good. And so suffering heightens our sense of incompleteness and brokenness. And it creates in us a yearning and a groaning for eternal glory. Suffering happens for the person who is in Christ within the context of hope. Yes, it reminds us we are human. 
And ultimately, it points us to Jesus who endured suffering for us so that we might experience full and complete salvation in Him. Think about the beauty of the gospel when it comes to this. That the gospel says that Jesus did not bypass suffering. He did not opt out. That He took on the full human experience. He faced it. He endured it. He went through it. And in doing so, He sympathizes with us. He has compassion for us. And He enables us to face whatever hardship life brings our way because we know the brokenness does not win. There is hope in Jesus. So we suffer. But we do not suffer as people with no hope. We grieve, but we do not grieve as people with no hope. We mourn, but we do not mourn as people with no hope. Instead, we wait eagerly alongside, Paul says, creation itself. We groan. We anticipate. We stand on our tiptoes knowing that the road of suffering ends in glory. I've been rereading the Psalms And over and over and over again throughout the Psalms, there are these visual images of creation worshiping, of creation singing God's praises, of of creation pointing to God. And what that reminds us of is as we live in a broken world, that creation itself speaks of a creator, a creator who will one day redeem all creation for His glory. So as the mountains stand on tiptoes in anticipation of that final revelation, as the rivers that flow and the the beauty of the streams stand on tiptoes in eager anticipation for that final day, as the lion and the lamb stand on tiptoes in eager anticipation of that final day, as the valleys and the beaches and the forest around us stand on tiptoes in an eager anticipation of that day, we stand alongside them because, what does Paul say? They are waiting, they are waiting for the full salvation of the children of God, that we, His ultimate creation, who are created in the image of God, it is when our full and final salvation takes place That creation itself will clap their hands and applause and worship the Creator. That He is taking us back, right? Back to Genesis 1. Back to Genesis 2. Back to before Genesis 3. When God had created a world and said, it is good. And in the meantime, in the meantime, we know whatever suffering we are facing, God is using it. For his glory, for our good, on the path to glory.